Nick Vince here. Today on the Chattering Hour, I'm joined by our very special Christmas guest, Mr. Chris Sarandon, a man with almost 200 acting credits to his name and nominations for both Golden Globe and Oscar. We talk about his roles in Dog Day Afternoon, Child's Play, Fright Night, and of course, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Up next today on The Chattering Hour, Mr. Chris Sarandon, right after this. And we're back with our special guest, Chris Sarandon. The 1993 film The Nightmare Before Christmas is a favourite of people looking for Halloween films and Christmas films, and his character of Jack Skellington appears on coffee mugs, t-shirts, and tattooed on people's arms and legs. In addition, he plays a wonderful vampire in Tom Holland's Fright Night, and a detective in our favourite killer doll film, Child's Play. Let's get to it. Chris, thank you so much indeed for joining me here Oh, my pleasure, Nick, my pleasure. Good. So I'd like to take you right back to your very beginning, uh, basically, because you're born in Beckley, West Virginia. Correct, correct. What was it like growing up there? Um, it was very small town America in one respect, uh, in that when I grew up, you know, my mom would open the door in the morning if it was not a school day and, uh, we would go out and, uh, at five o'clock I'd hear my mother blowing a whistle on the little back porch off our kitchen. And that's when I'd come home. And the rest of the day, I was either walking down to my friend Phil's house or my friend uh, Mike's house, and we'd play all day. Uh, it was a very um, rarefied and uh, impossible to conceive of uh, upbringing uh, when you think of it now in terms of you know just how fraught uh, uh, the, the idea of leaving our children alone to play mm-hmm with them you know with their friends out in the streets alone uh for however long they wanted to it was a town of uh 18,000 people right uh, but the distinguishing factor was that it was a coal mining town oh. uh, in that it was the center of a region where there were lots of, of uh, bituminous coal uh, bituminous is soft coal right uh, and uh, uh it was the center of that region and it was also the county seat so the city or the town was uh, an interesting mix of small town America, but also it had a kind of feel of, um, it's hard to describe. My father owned a restaurant. Right. So I was exposed from the time I was very young to uh, coal miners, to uh, rural um, uh, Appalachia, on the one hand, but also the town was the county seat. So there were a lot of lawyers. Uh, there were a couple of hospitals there. So there were doctors. So there was a major kind of cross section of uh, people that I was exposed to growing up. Uh, so it was not cosmopolitan. It wasn't sophisticated on the one hand, but it, there were pockets of it on the other hand. 
Right. So when and my, we- my family were both immigrants. My dad was an immigrant from, from uh, a small Greek village in Turkey. Right. And my mother's family were all from the islands, the Greek islands. So uh, I grew up a kind of stranger in a strange land in a way um, in that my parents spoke Greek at home. And, uh, and in the restaurant, you know, we were all Americans. My dad was part of the, the community. He spoke with a very thick accent, but he was, uh, he, he was in the Elks Club and the this thing and the that, you know, it was an interesting kind of conglomeration of, of uh, growing up. Right. So when did the acting bug take hold then? The bug happened in college. Uh, before that, I was always, and I think part of it, I'm, and I, I'm writing a memoir, so that I'm, I'm dealing with this, you know, what's the genesis of all of this? And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that uh, I was trying to belong. And at the same time, I knew I didn't belong because my parents were aliens, uh, quote, end quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, there were citizens, obviously my mother was born here, but her parents, she didn't spoke, speak English until she went to school. Uh, she grew up in a, a very, uh, 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 intensely kind of ghettoized Greek community in a small town in Florida. So she was a product of a very strict Greek upbringing. And my dad came from the old country and uh, was naturalized. So, and when my parents would speak Greek in public, I was sort of torn between, uh, I, I knew wh- what I, uh, who I was on the one hand, but on the other hand, I was trying to separate from it because I wanted to be an all-American kid, just like all the other kids. There, were, there was nobody like me. So I think as a kind of defense mechanism, I listened a lot and I had a good ear for accents and dialects, and I told jokes, and I read aloud in school because I was good at that. So that was the kind of, I guess, genesis of it, that shape-shifting that you have to do to belong. Uh, And then when I got to college, uh, I was, I was, uh, I worked very hard to be popular. And so I got involved in politics when I was in college and I was going to run for student body president and I was running this committee and that committee. And then uh, I had a, a, an opening in one of my class uh, schedules and uh, I decided to take an acting class. And the professor, God bless him, Chuck Neal was his name and he, he has since passed away. Um, he invited me to be in a play and he said, a small part, you won't lose time on the, all the committees that you belong to. Don't worry. You know, you, you, and it was something where, you know, you got to wear a toga. So, <laughs> you know, the, the kid in me went, oh, great. I get to play like I'm a Roman. It was a production of Julius Caesar. And, um, and that occurred. And then he offered me a lead in a play, a, a production of a play called Tartuffe which is a Moliere comedy mm-hmm. uh, of manners and, and uh, very satiric about society. And uh, I, I didn't know whether I should do it or not. And I, I realized that not only did I get to wear a fake nose, 
but uh, the woman who was playing opposite me was a former Miss West Virginia. And so I thought, well, well come on, <laughs> you know, I can't lose. And so I, I decided to do that because I had a little time in my schedule and that was it. I completely dropped everything. I, dro I, I recused myself from all the committee work that I was doing and I left, the, I was in a fraternity and I was living in the fraternity house. I moved out. I moved in with a, a, a grandma of a friend of mine uh, in an apartment. I had a one room and she had another room. We shared the kitchen and I became a theater wonk nerd. You know, I was in every play that I could be in. I, I was smitten. Wow. So how old was that when you were playing um, <clears throat> Julius Caesar then? How old when you got that? Oh, I wasn't playing Julius Caesar. I was Sorry, playing a, like a minor character called Flavius or something like yeah, that. Uh, yeah. Uh, I guess I was uh, 19, 20. Right, right. Because yeah. you ended up with a master's degree in theatre, is that right? Yes, I ended up uh, after West Virginia, which didn't have a formal theatre program, I ended up going to one of the three um, Master of Fine Arts schools in the States. Uh, at the time, there were only three of them, Yale, Carnegie Tech, and Catholic University. I couldn't get into Yale or Carnegie Tech because I didn't have enough of a theater background. Right. And so I got into Catholic U, which was the, you know, these the kismet, what do you want to call it? Um, it was the perfect choice for me because right. they had a professional theater program where they had a touring company, and I toured my second year of graduate school, I was out on the road uh, for eight months doing one-nighters of Romeo and Juliet and uh, another Tartuffe, I mean, another uh, Moliere play called The Miser. And we, we two, two station wagons in a truck, 15 students, and we traveled all over the, from east of the Rockies, um, uh, 35,000 miles of one-nighters. And we did the sets. I was the lighting director and also the truck driver and played Romeo. Uh, it was the experience of a lifetime. Wow. And mm. th this led on to doing Rose Tattoo? Yes, that was there. And they had a professional summer theater program uh, of, through Actors' Equity, which is the, the, I know there's British Equity as well, but yeah. uh, this is the theater uh, union. And I was the driver uh, I, I ferried all the professional actors around and then they let me play parts of the young guys in the plays. And that's how I got my equity card. And I got to work with Olympia Dukakis uh, in the Rose Tattoo. That was my first show. I played the young kid in that show. And of course they bleached my hair blonde because I, <laughs> I was the only, I was the only, no, I'm sorry. One other person, the guy who was playing the, the male lead was Italian. And I'm here. I am dark-haired Greek kid with the you know sort of darkish complexion, and they bleached my hair blonde so that I could play this young American sailor uh, in the play. And I got like three or four parts in that play, and worked with these amazing. Roy Scheider was in the company that year, and uh, uh, an actor by the name of George Grizzard, John Colicos, the great Canadian classical actor, um, and uh, that was the sort of the beginning of my professional theater uh, road. Right. Right. So how did you make the move from theater into TV? Um, actually, it was almost sort of straight from theater into movies because, oh. uh, yeah, I was doing, I right after graduate school, I did a year of 
uh, improv theater and also to make money. I was working with a small theater company in Washington, D.C., while my uh, former wife, Susan, was still in school. She was a senior in school and I had graduated. So I was doing uh, improv at night. And then during the day, we toured uh, D.C., Washington, D.C. public schools doing one little one act plays that that also we also did uh, improvisation with the kids in the plays. Right. And another extraordinary experience because doing improv is is such great training ground for any kind of work. And um, and then I auditioned for something called the TCG, which is the Theater Communications Group, which is the loosely affiliated group of regional theaters all over the country in, in the United States. And uh, I got hired to work at a theater in New Haven, Connecticut, which is about an hour and a half from New York City. And so I was in the company there for a year. And then uh, just literally, uh, serendipitously, my the guy who was running the theater agent came to see one of the shows that I was in and said, you should come in and audition for all the agents at, at the at the agency. And I needed a scene partner. And so uh, Susan, my ex and I worked up a couple of scenes and I brought my guitar and I sang, <laughs> I sang a song and she and I read a couple of scenes and literally like that, they signed us both. And this was with an agency at the time, which was like what is currently CAA. It was called wow. CMA. And it was one of the biggest agencies in the world. And here we were, you know, I just out of school so uh, it's a little mind blowing when you think about it because all of these, what these these uh, these occurrences kind mm -hmm. of uh, came together to create this opportunity, and there I was, and the first job I had, you're right, was uh, on a soap opera, right in the states called The Guiding Light, and uh, I was uh, I had a very small role basically all I did was when the surgeons would come through the room where all the doctors were scrubbing, washing their hands, prepare for surgery, you know, uh, I would be the, the one who was scrubbing as the lead actor came through and I would go, good morning, doctor. And he would say, good morning, doctor. <laughs> that was basically my line for six months or eight months or whatever the <laughs> period of time was that I was on the show. Right. But I made enough to pay rent on an apartment in New York, which was at the time relatively inexpensive, mm -hmm. 275 bucks a month. And um, and then Susan got a job on a soap opera. And then I got a job uh, as a replacement in a Broadway show, a lead in a Broadway show called uh, The Two Gentlemen of Verona, which was the musical version of yeah. Two Gentlemen, uh, replacing Raul Julia. And I did that show for like nine months a year. And uh, that was, um, so So it was from the beginning anyway, in terms of my professional career, I, I did start it in theater, but then it became a mix of theater, TV, and then Dog Day Afternoon happened. Which of course, I'm just fascinated by Dog Day Afternoon. Was this just an audition? Yeah, <laughs> actually uh, it was, um, I had I knew uh, tangentially I knew Sidney Lumet because by by that time Susan had done a film with Sidney 
So right. I, I, I knew him just sort of, you know, socially. Uh, and I also knew Al Pacino because I had worked with his girlfriend, Jill Clayburgh, um, in a production of a, of a Broadway musical called The Rothschilds. And, um, and so when I went into the audition, uh, there were kind of familiar faces. I wasn't terribly nervous. And, um, and Al Pacino was there and Sidney was there. Um, and it was also interesting because when I arrived for the audition, the audition room was filled with guys dressed in drag. And, and there I was, and I thought, oh, what did I, I did something wrong because I arrived in a, you know, a, a sweater and a pair of jeans. And I thought, oh, I've really screwed up. I, uh, I didn't know that because I knew about the character. Mm. The character was someone who was a, a, a potentially uh, a, 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 a transgender uh, in transition. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> I walked in and I had a very, very strong sense that I knew this character. I don't know why. Um I had worked with a number of gay actors in my theater career in New York. Uh, and uh, that was a kind of, I don't know, a kind of prepping ground. But I also had this this feeling about this, this human being who was trapped in the wrong psyche. And in a way, it was, it was easy for me to identify because I grew up that way of feeling an alien, if not in body, in mind. Um, and so I did the audition and Sidney Lumet said something really brilliant to me. He said, a little less Blanche Dubois, a little more Queens housewife. Queens is a, one of the uh, uh, parts of New York city that yeah, yeah, one, one of the, the bars. Yeah. Uh, and so I came back and I read again and that was it. They, I was, I was hired. Wow. Yeah. Now, for those viewers who don't know, Dog Day Afternoon is based on a uh, real televised experience. Yes. Do you remember watching that when it happened? Or was that just something you're vaguely remember, aware of? You... I remember when it occurred. And at the time, it was more a matter of its being a, you know, you get up in the morning and you pick up the paper on your way to, you know, you're on the subway on your way to the theater. And it was front page news that this guy had... Uh, attempted to rob the bank. He was trapped in the bank with hostages. And then they discovered that the guy, the reason he had robbed the bank was to pay for his, his wife, quote, end quotes, uh, because they were actually married by a priest mm -hmm. um, in, uh, uh, to buy a, uh, to have enough money for a sex change operation. Right. So uh, it was sensational, but it didn't, you know, it didn't go, Oh my God, I, 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 I want to be there. I want to do this, whatever, mm. you know, if, if this ultimately becomes something, it, the thought didn't occur to me. Right. Uh, and it was some years later. I think it was a couple of years later, several years later. Yeah. Uh, before yeah, yeah. the uh, four screen yeah, yeah. It was, oh. But it was big news in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I have to say, I watched it again this morning, funnily enough. Oh, wow. And I've not seen it. My memory is I, it came out in 75. I probably watched it. 76, 77 on television. I don't mm -hmm. remember seeing, you know, definitely didn't go to cinema. No, yeah. I, and I just remember, firstly, I remember your character so clearly, partly because of the hair. 
(laughs) (laughs) Taken from the photographs of the, of the actual uh, character. Right. Right. And again, just watching it again, and I will talk about the performance in a moment, it's all those details you suddenly notice. The beautifully manicured nails with yeah. Was this was this part of your process? You've talked about the alienation and finding that deep inside. But was that costume and makeup who made those decisions or was that No, actually we had a wealth of because it was a real life event, we had a wealth of material to draw from. And one of the photographs, the the one that uh, influenced me the most in terms of the look was a picture of uh, Ernie Aaron, the guy's real name. Um, in the movie, he's Leon Shermer. Mm-hmm. But uh, Ernie arriving at the scene, clutching that robe, that that ubiquitous hospital, you know, uh, seersucker robe, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, with the teased hair and the uh, plucked eyebrows, and that was it. You know, that's all you need. <laughs> Yeah. And it's there. It's yeah. not as if you have to make it up. It's there. Right. And how so much I stole, I stole everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, That's right. Know. Steal from the best. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Do, now, how much of it was, imp- again, watching it today, it's very clear that it, it feels improvised. But I was wondering how much improvisation there was. And did you actually improvise the last phone call? that they have between you there have was a sort of combination of that. Uh, I know that the original script was brilliant. In fact, the movie was nominated, I think for like seven Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. One that one was for the screenplay and rightfully so, I think mm-hmm. uh, Frank Pearson's screenplay was just so extraordinary. Um, but the phone scene, uh, when we did a real kind of concentrated rehearsal segment because Sidney came from the theater originally, Sidney yes. Lamar. And um, he was very much of the belief that uh, he, he always shot, he, he knew exactly what he was shooting. He had the, the movie basically cut in his head very often and didn't waste any time, didn't waste any shots. You know, we seldom did more than one or two takes in the entire film, at least the scenes that I was in. And I know Sidney was kind of famous for that. Um, But he was very open to the moment. And when Al Pacino and I first read the the phone scenes, it rang oddly melodramatic. Uh, It started with an argument. You know, as soon as the phone, you know, uh, Leon picked up the phone Mm -hmm. and he started talking to Sonny, uh, they were yelling at each other. And we both felt that... The real life situation is that these are two people who have been through hell together. <laughs> and and the situation is melodramatic. Uh, Leon has just been in the hospital after overdosing. Al is in a bank with hostages. Uh, there are hundreds of people on the streets. There are police helicopters flying around. I mean, it's, you know, it's a highly fraught situation that just in terms of tone and and giving yourself someplace to go, you don't start at the top. You need to 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 first establish that these characters are familiar with each other. Mm-hmm. So it's not a matter of screaming at each other. It's more like, hi, how you doing? <laughs> uh, 
what, what, what's going on? I don't know. What's, what's happening with you? <laughs> you know, it's, it's very mundane and, and uh, uh, every day. And then the events that are laid out in the written scene will reveal themselves. And so we started just kind of riffing, uh, uh, Al and I did. And as we were doing it, we were incorporating everything that Frank had written, Frank Pearson had written into the scene, but we were doing it in a kind of organic way. And when we finished, we talked about it a little bit and Sydney said, oh, all right, let's do it again. And, and he said, wait, wait. And he had somebody, and I can't remember whether they taped it. I think they did. Uh, we did it again, and then we talked about it again because we realized, oh, we left this out. This is important. Uh, we need to get to this point in the scene. We, you know, we were constructing it, but in an improvisational way. Mm-hmm. And then we did maybe four or five of them uh, in which they were transcribed. Then Sydney said, great. Uh, and we stopped rehearsing. And a couple of nights later, as I recall, we sat in. Uh, Marty uh, Marty Bregman, who was then the producer and also Al's manager, I think. Uh, we sat in his office with Sidney, with Frank Pearson, with Marty Alfan, the other producer. Um, and we talked about each version of the scene that we had had then, Sidney had had them transcribed. And then we agreed on a version. And from that point on, uh, in the scheduling of the movie, I didn't come to work for a while. Uh, and actually my first scene was uh, uh, the entrance where Leon's brought from the hospital and goes into mm-hmm. the barbershop. And, uh, and so I would go over to Al's house when he had some time off and we would, uh, his apartment, and we would run it. And we would say, oh, well, let's try it this way. Let's try it this way. And basically we were just kind of keeping it fresh so that on the day when he shot his, I was on the phone with him and we had a, 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 a set version that came out of the improvisation. And then uh, he was on the phone for me when I was in the barbershop. Uh, and we basically, it was, you know, then it had become a kind it had become a theater piece that was filmed in a way. Wow. I, I extraordinary. So you had a practical phone so you could hear his voice. Oh yeah. 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 We did. We were on the line for each other in both versions. I've not heard of that. Be- I guess it's often it may often be done. I, I know people often read from behind camera, yeah. But to actually have, which kind of speaks to the intimacy you were talking about stealing from the best. I have to say, if I ever need to steal the moment when a relationship kind of ends, it's the last three or four lines. Yeah. It's because it's just that kind of like we've said we've done all the emotion, right? Oh. How do we actually physically end? Right. How this? do you? How, what's the template for this? There is yeah. none. Yeah, precisely. And yeah. it's it's incredibly moving. Very mm. very moving. Oh, very, great, great. Thank you. That's my. Now, obviously, I. You were nominated for yeah. at least three awards. But and you mentioned that the uh, the film itself. I mean, I think Al Pacino was up for a best yeah, actor Al as well. Yeah, Al was nominated. I think I don't know if John Cazal was nominated. Either he or Charlie Durning. I'm not sure which. I think, I think I think they were both nominated, but for yep. Globes possibly rather than Oscars. Ah, okay. What was the? Ex- I mean, it's possibly a bit of memory, but what was the experience of not winning the award because there was so much no, buzz? It was not bitter. First of all. Um, 
by then I had separated from my uh, my wife, at, but at the same time she had <laughs> rather humorously insisted that she get to go to the the uh, the Oscars with me. Uh, and at the time I was unattached, and we were you know we were separated and and amicably separated. <laughs> so so I said, yeah, sure, let's let's go together. Uh, and first of all, I think it was clear. Just, you know, you have this feeling. It was George Burns' year. George Burns had been kind of absent from the entertainment scene for some time. Uh, this was a kind of quote-unquote comeback for him. Uh, he was much loved in the community, and rightfully so. Uh, and so it seemed to be a fait accompli that he was going to win. So I didn't feel any pressure. I just thought, let's just have a good time. Right. So uh, we also decided that rather than going in a stretch limousine that the studio that Warner Brothers had, had furnished, that we just said, look, give us the driver. We want to bring our own vehicle. And we rented a little Nash Rambler, a little sort of it looked like a Pillsbury Doughboy. I don't know if you're familiar with Pillsbury Doughboys, but it was a little white kind of chunky little box of a with a and so we had this livery driver you know dressed to the nines and uh, uh i'm i'm in my tux and susan's in her gown and we arrive in this little kind of putt putt car uh and it was all really about you know let's don't take this too seriously let's just have a good time and uh we get out of the car and uh we start uh, up the at the time the red carpet was kind of different then. There was it was kind of a long kind of runway, and there were there were stands on either side, uh, grandstands on either side, and fans would sit in the grandstands and yell. And then there was a guy named Army Archard, who used to write a column in the in Variety and was very very famous uh, as uh, a Variety columnist. And he was the host, and he was kind of at the top of a sort of parapet, uh, and um, and so as we're walking. He's interviewing somebody and and they whoever's running this thing pulls me aside and says, Okay, you're you're next to go up and talk to Army. He wants to talk to you. And as I'm walking up the steps, I'm hearing Chris, Chris, and the crowd is screaming and yelling, and I'm going, Whoa, hey, I'm this is Hollywood. Hey, <laughs> I've arrived. And I get to the top and I'm starting to talk to Army Archer, and he's asking me questions, and I'm going, Well, you know, Army. Um, when you're in the work and you're, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing all the things that I swore I wouldn't do, which is take it very seriously, take myself very seriously. And I'm, I'm just chattering away like the learned, extraordinary, experienced actor. It's my first movie for God's sake. Right. And I'm just rattling away and they're screaming, the crowd's screaming and there's all this noise. And I realized they're not screaming for me now. It's the next person on the totem pole who's coming up the steps. It's Sylvester Stallone, right? And I'm thinking they're going, Chris, Chris. No, they're going, Sly, Sly. And that's the moment that put it in perspective. That's what this is. Enjoy it. I went down the steps, chastened, uh, I must say. Uh, we went in. We had a great time. Uh, enjoyed the evening. And that was it. I have wow. a plaque. <laughs> <laughs> and then back to the day job and so Yeah, right. Looking for work. Yes, yes, yeah. 
which I mean, which you obviously found. You, you know, you you had a very long, successful career. And I just wanted to pick out a few of those, if I may, um, that are related to the horror genre. In sure. 1977, you did um, a Michael Winner horror film, The mm. Sentinel, which had Burgess Meredith, Eli Wallach, Christopher Walken, John Carradine. Berlin Balsam. How was that experience? Ava Gardner. Yes, Ava Gardner. Yes. Yeah, Jose Ferrer was in that. Arthur Kennedy was in it. God. Well, <clears throat> first of all, uh, I, I must uh, uh, preface this by saying that there are times in one's life when one makes decisions based on uh, the the, uh, the 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 desire to to create art. <clears throat> great art. This was not one of them. Uh, I was, <laughs> I, I, I was, a, I was given, you know, billing. I, I was given a lot of money. Uh, all the things that I swore I wouldn't do, uh, uh, I did. Uh, and it turned out to me uh, personally to be a disaster. Uh, Michael Winner, uh, God rest his soul, uh, was a uh, very, very, I, I want to think of a kind way to put it, uh, but I won't. Uh, he, was, uh, he, he was not a nice man. And uh, he, he was one of those people who, when he thought there was a, a chink in one's armor, would go for that chink and would try to um, uh, create a situation in which he became um, uh, the master of the situation. And uh, the work atmosphere was not pleasant. Uh, he was a very, very autocratic on the one hand, and at the same time, cruel at times, not to me, but to, to you know, I mean, they, there were times when, for instance, he, instead of having the makeup FX people create uh, freakish characters, he put an ad in the paper or had an ad put in the paper for people with real deformities. And then had them on camera. And during the filming of the scenes, when we weren't filming, you could hear him making wisecracks about them. It was a toxic environment. Uh, it was not fun. And it's one of the few films that I look back on and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that, uh, both for my personal growth and my emotional health, uh, and also for what it represented, uh, it was just not, it was not pleasant. There, I know there are fans of the movie out there, and I don't want to spoil your experience, but at the same time, for me, it was uh, a disaster. Right. Only time I've ever said that. I've been in movies that have been bombs, but I've always found something to to come out of it and say, you know what, I'm glad I did this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a, a good friend of mine, Barbie, who worked on Death Wish 3 ah, yeah. with him. And she and had a small part and yeah. just, it was the things that he said to her and tried to get her to do that weren't in the oh. contract. And that, oh, I'm sure. Just not a nice man at all. No, no, think, no. How come he just kept on making movie after movie? After well, movie? because, and he's, he, he confided this to me. He said, the secret is to make your next deal before your, the movie you're working on comes out. So that way, if it's a disaster, you've already got your next job. Right. And that's the way he kept working. Right, right. 
Can you recall any other pieces of great advice? Well, I'm not saying that's a piece of great advice, but the only piece of advice I ever got from him. Right. What about any particular piece of advice that you've received? Because you've worked with some extraordinary people. Anything that springs to mind in terms of advice that you've received? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I think it, it, it's not necessarily a single piece of advice as much as the experience that I had from the beginning was, first of all, it was from the theater. And <clears throat> so the, the actors that I first started working with as a professional were all pros. They were people who took the work seriously. They, it, it, uh, the work had nothing to do with celebrity. Uh, it had nothing to do with becoming famous. It was all about the process. And, uh, and so that always was paramount to me in whatever I was doing was mm -hmm. what's the process? Has the process been successful? Has it not been successful? And if it has been, then that's what I consider uh, to be a success. Uh, if the process wasn't, then, you know, as in the case with the Sentinel, then this was a failure, even though the movie made a lot of money, mm -hmm. you know, that I cannot base my, my, uh, my sense of, of uh, accomplishment on financial success. It has to be on the, the work itself and whether it's, uh, it's fulfilling in some way or if I've learned something or if I've come out of it a better person in some way, uh, then that's, that's what I'm looking for. Right. Right. Because you, you went on to work with, after that, you went on to work with Sean Connery uh, a couple Worked of times. Worked with Sean a couple of times, actually. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How, was that, how was working with Mr. Connery? Uh, yeah, Sean was a unique character. He really was. I mean, and, and in the sense of being a, he was in some ways very eccentric uh, and not in a, not in a, um, a, a destructive way, but in a, in a, um, he was easy to enjoy right. because he enjoyed himself and he enjoyed other people. He was very easy to work with. He was a great scene partner. He liked to rehearse. Uh, he liked to analyze scenes. He was always accessible. Um, we were on a, on a location together in Spain for a movie called Cuba that Richard Lester directed. Right. And, um, and, uh, Sean, we would, when we'd go out at night, Sean was always with us. We'd go hang in, you know, clubs around this very small town. We were shooting in a place called Jerez de la Frontera in, in southern Spain, in Andalusia. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sean was always hanging out with us. Uh, and, and, and also, the, one of the things that I always appreciated about Sean was his, his there's no bullshit. <laughs> he was very straightforward. He spoke his mind. And it wasn't about being a movie star. It was his. It was his natural inclination. I never had a sense that Sean was lording it over anybody, uh, because he was a big, big movie star. Because he had done, uh, a, I guess, a couple of Bond movies by then, or at least one or two. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, and then I did a movie called uh, Just Cause with him that I was ultimately <laughs> cut out of most of. Yeah. I had a couple of scenes with Cape Capshaw and with Sean that were that ended up on the cutting room floor. But again, uh, great experiences. I I really enjoyed him and, and miss him. Yeah. 
Right, right. And what about thinking about director now? Another great director you worked with was Sam Peckinpah on the Oscar weekend. Yeah. What was that like? That was the only time I have ever been. I've been hired for a movie sight unseen. That is, I'd get a script and it was an offer, which doesn't happen very often, by the Mm. way. Um, Or uh, you go in and you audition or you meet and you talk and then you come back and, and, and you meet again and you discuss. I walked into Sam's office the first time I met him. I sat down, we talked for literally five minutes about nothing. And he he looked at me and he said, okay, you're hired. And I went, excuse me. <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, you're hired. You're hired. Uh, good to meet you. I'll see you on the set. And that was it. For those of you who don't know, actors dream of moments like this. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And and working with him was was uh, very interesting. I know that we, uh, at the time, his health was not good. This was his last film, right? Uh, oh, yes. And so that uh, the, uh, from what I understand, the irascible, difficult um, genius was not. Uh, always evident in in my working with him, but it was it was uh, interesting nonetheless because I got a chance to be exposed to the great Sam Peckinpah, right. and right. and he was very genial and and uh, a- a- extraordinarily forthcoming, and uh, he was great. Okay. Good, good, good. Yeah. And then um, a little while after that, you, I mean, one of your first mm-hmm. genre real big hits was Fright Night, directed by Tom Holland. Again, was that just another casting? That was, uh, I got the script and that was an offer. That is, they sent me the script. Would you be interested in playing this role? And at the time, excuse me, and I've talked about this uh, a number of times that I I was, I had been kind of going back and forth between doing films and uh, television specials. Right. And at the time there was a, a, a special set of programs that were primarily on television. They were something called the Hallmark Hall of Fame and they did right. classics. Uh, I did uh, um, You Can't Go Home Again, which is a, an adaptation of a Thomas Wolfe novel, a, a great American novelist. Uh, with Lee Grant, and I did uh, A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, <laughs> some interesting stories involved with that one as well. Uh, but that was a great experience, and and uh, that was a three-hour special for for uh, uh, American television, in which I played Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay both. And um, and so I was kind of full of myself, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, you know, I was a theater actor, and I had done these Hallmark Hall of Fames, and I'd been getting offers for some films and Dino De Laurentiis while we were doing lipstick had offered me a number of a slate of pictures that I'd turned down all of them. That's another sort of, that, that'll be in the book. Um, and, um, and so I got the script and I looked at the title page and it said fright night. And I went, Oh Jesus, I can't, you know, I'm a, I'm a very important actor. I do classical theater. I do, classical television programs, I'm in demand, so really the pain in the ass full of myself. And I, I can't do this, but at the same time, this is an offer and I, I owe it to them to read it and then call back and tell them why I'm not doing it, right? 
So I sit down and I have a very vivid memory. I had a big old uh, roll top desk that, you know, the top slides up. Yeah, and I yeah. sat down on my roll top desk in our New York City apartment. Uh, this was during my second marriage. And, and uh, I sat down and I started reading the script. And within, I don't know, like 10 minutes, I was like, this is really freaking good. And by the time I finished the script, I said, I, I have to meet this guy. Uh, so I called my agent and, and they set up a meeting. They flew me out to LA to meet Tom and uh, uh, Herb Jaffe, the producer. And uh, we sat down and after maybe five minutes of pleasantries, he said, Tom said something like, uh, I, I know I'm a first time director, but and he had a history in, in uh, major motion pictures. He'd written a number of screenplays that mm. had been produced, uh, but this was his first directing job. And Tom said, this is how I see the film. And he started at the beginning and he described every shot of the movie. And he just went through it. And by the time he finished this amazing presentation, I went, I got up and I went, uh, okay, uh, where's the contract? <laughs> you know, where do I, the, the cliche, where do I sign? Uh, and that was the beginning of a, a, a an extraordinary, to me, um, uh, collaboration with Tom. Uh, Tom had been an actor when he was younger. And so we had a couple of weeks of rehearsal. Uh, at the first time since Sydney to Met that I'd had that kind of uh, intense rehearsal period. Mm. Uh, we all did background books on our characters. Uh, we uh, discussed the scenes. We rehearsed the scenes. Um, any suggestions that the actor ha actors had that Tom liked, he incorporated them into the script. Uh, it's interesting because we did recently a benefit Zoom, one of these virtual readings of Fright Night, for the Michigan State Democratic Party. And John Stark, uh, who played Billy, my sidekick in the movie, uh, uh, had was, was the person who was collating the script. And he had a hell of a time because he realized that the printed script was totally different from the script that we shot because there were so many adjustments that Tom made along the way based on the work that we did in rehearsal, which never happens. Mm. Um, it happened in Dog Day. It it happened in Fright Night, and it hasn't happened before or since for me and either. Wow. What was it? Because you had some scenes with Roddy McDowell, did you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. What was it like working with Ms. Roddy McDowell? Roddy was such an, first of all, an extraordinary human being. Um, he was a walking encyclopedia of Hollywood history. Uh, so the regaling us with stories of, you know, working on uh, How Green Was My Valley, which is my one of my all-time favorite movies when Roddy was a boy, yeah. uh, through working with Liz Taylor and becoming her dear friend, uh, and uh, up through the Planet of the Apes films. Uh, and he had this extraordinary collection of films at his home, uh, and uh, um, coincidentally, my wife, Joanna Gleason, had worked with Roddy on a tour with Vincent Price and Coral Brown and Roddy, uh, the three of them. And so she knew him well. So we became really close friends with Roddy um, uh, because we had 
by then moved to California. And um, this was post Fright Night. Mm -hmm. uh, and we would often go to Ronnie's house and sit with these, you know, these famous dinners that Ronnie would have where you'd sit down and suddenly you'd be looking around the table at half the people that you'd grown up idolizing when you were watching films when you were a kid or, uh, you know, in your 20s or 30s. Um, and he was he was an extraordinary fellow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, miss him terribly. Of course, of course. And of course, I think the other highly successful collaboration you had with Tom Holland was with uh, Child's Play. Yes. Again, did he just offer that one to you? Tom wanted me to do it, but the studio did not want me to do it. Uh, they had a different idea <laughs> about uh, who this uh, macho a uh, cop from Chicago should be. And Tom and I had had such a great collaboration on, on Fright Night. And I think to a certain extent, he also <clears throat> wanted an ally, uh, somebody who could, you know, step up and go, Hey guys, come on, you know, back off, leave them alone. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, because it is by definition, I think, uh, an, an antagonistic relationship, the artist and the and the people who bankroll the movies, uh, by necessity, mm. and that friction is good. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, the people who are furnishing the money have a right to say, "Look, you know, this is the time we have. This is the amount of money we have. You can't be profligate. You've got to be responsible." Uh, and on the other hand, the artist has the 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 compulsion. And the the um, uh, the responsibility mm -hmm. to say this is my vision. Don't fuck with me. <laughs> uh, and uh, Tom is not one to be a shrinking violet when it comes to the studio. And he 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 at times could be volatile, necessarily volatile, because sometimes it's it's necessary to have that kind of force. Uh, uh, up against these, you know, these people who are basically bookkeepers at mm -hmm. times. Uh, and so uh, I think I was an ally in that regard because I, I was the person who could go up to Tom and say, Tom, chill, okay? Uh, you want to you wanna stay on this movie. I want you to stay on this movie. Let's figure out a way to make this work. Uh it didn't happen that often, but when mm -hmm. it did, I was around. But it, it, Tom fought for me and cast me. He right. talked them into casting me. Right. Did you find the, as I did, watching it recently, the doll just really disturbing and its whole hard. concept? Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> the concept is disturbing. You know, every child's nightmare that the child's toys will come alive and somehow be menacing and malevolent. Um, it was difficult to think of it as being uh, th that kind of malevolent figure when you were constantly dealing with an animatronic uh, uh, um, uh, Chucky, mm -hmm. who was, you know, you're standing on a fake floor and there are guys underneath it pulling wires and you know doing the moving the hands and 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 you're doing endless takes because an arm is not in the right position on one particular shot. Um, I remember uh, excruciating uh, 
series of nights in the freezing cold in Chicago where I'm in the car and Chucky's trying to knife me. Um, and, uh, you know, the knife is not glinting in the right way. The light's bouncing. It's, it's you know, it's bouncing into camera. It's flaring. Um, his knife is not in the right position. Uh, it, it, it's, it's not fun <laughs> shooting. Um, and also because in, and I'm, I'm dating myself, but in those days, and it was the same for, um, same for Fright Night as it was for hmm. Child's Play, that there was no CGI, that everything, all the stunts were, all the visual stunts were practical. Mm. Uh, so everything had to be done in, in uh, jury-rigged ways, you know, cutting things between little people uh, uh, in big sets uh, as being Chucky to, uh, you know, the animatronic to, you know, there's a guy in the back seat operating the, the knife. The mm-hmm. arm. It's crazy. I sat one day for hours just with my hand uh, grasping at the radio so that they would have cuts of my attempting to uh, get help while Charlie's, uh, Chucky's trying to knife me. Uh, it's crazy. It's crazy. Uh, it was fun in some respects, but it was the freezing cold Chicago, uh, middle of the winter. <clears throat> I remember one scene where uh, Catherine Hicks is leaving. I think it's a police station. I can't remember exactly what the scene is. And I'm supposed to try to stop her or she gets into a taxi cab or something. And I walk out the door and the the set, the, the location was right on Lake Michigan, almost, you know, adjacent to it or the river, the Chicago River. And a blast of air comes off the lake just as I'm going to holler to her. And all I could do was go <laughs> because I couldn't speak. It was so friggin' cold. Uh, it was, uh, we should have gotten hardship pay. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It was a, t- it was a tough shoot. Right. Right. But fun looking back on it. It was, I have, I have stories. Right. Good stories. Yeah. Good. Good, good, good. Um, moving on a bit, then I'd like to talk about a nightmare on, uh, sorry, a nightmare before Christmas. The nightmare before Christmas. Right? Nightmare before Christmas. Or, or properly titled Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Yes. And of course, although Tim Burton was the originator of the idea and the long story of getting the rights back from Disney, etc., um, it was actually directed by Henry Selick. Um, Correct. Now, first thing, how were you brought onto that project? That was an audition, straight audition. Uh, the 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 singing had been recorded uh, by Danny Elfman. Mm-hmm. The songs had been, I believe, they had been animated by then, or at least partially animated. Uh, and uh, there was a casting call. Right. Uh, I was in a room with a bunch of other people. We all went in. Uh, I believe we had storyboards and I think we may have, I, I, I'm pretty sure we had, because they wanted a voice that matched Danny's voice and just sheer luck. The, our voices were close enough together that they were able to cut them together. So they cast me. Right. That was it. Is this your first voiceover work? I'm trying to think if I'd done anything before this, I don't think so. I'd done a couple of things after. Right. Uh, I did a Miyazaki uh, from the Japanese to to English. Right. Uh, something called Nausicaa. 
Yes. Uh, and and uh, I'd done a, a, a low-budget uh, feature called uh, The Chosen One, where I played an old, old, <laughs> an old geezer minor uh, prospector. Um, but uh, no, that was it. That was the first one. Right, right. Yeah. What's now? I mean, the initial response to when it first came out wasn't that positive. Um, it's it's interesting because, as was the case with uh, Fright Night, which was a moderate hit. But not a huge, you know. It was not, it was like a, a a summer horror vampire movie that you know got its audience and then kind of left the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and to a certain extent, Child's Play, although I think Child's Play was made a bigger bit of a bigger splash. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not a huge, huge, you know, like tentpole opening, a big opening movie that lasted forever. It was around. It it got its. Uh, critical uh, kudos, but then it sort of left the scene, and and and, it, and actually the same with the Princess Bride. Yes, of course. Uh, where, where they have moderate success when they first open, and then uh, their cult status uh, becomes almost legendary over time. And uh, uh, Nightmare has been uh, the 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 multi generational response to that movie and the Princess Bride. Has just I I still wonder at it, and not because of the quality of the pictures, but just because of the the enormity of their fan base. Right, right. I'm mean, we didn't really talk about Princess Bride. Do you? What's your favorite moment from working on Princess Bride? I think just because it was my favorite scene, the uh, the scene with Chris Guest in the in the forest just before we go into the pit of despair. And I say, you know, I have my wife to murder, my 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 country to <laughs> the Florida to blame for it. I have a wedding to plan. I'm swamped. Yeah. Uh, that was my favorite moment, just because the dialogue is so just the the rhythm of the speech is so perfect, and the tone is so quintessentially William Goldman, The Princess Bride. You know, there are and there are any number of lines like that in the movie that other characters have. Obviously, yeah. you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, I think Wesley has a line that he says to Buttercup when she says it, it isn't fair. And, she, and he says, <clears throat> life isn't fair. Anybody who's trying to tell you any different is selling something. This, it's, it's that wonderful juxtaposition of situation and, and, the, and, the, and the clash of modern sensibility with the situation, which is uh, uh, ancient in a way. Mm. You know, it's 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 um, it's a genre kind of cliche, but it's the, the cliche is twisted. Um, uh, and uh, thematically, it's uh, it's interesting to me that a lot of that happens in Fright Night too, where Tom, who had a great affection, Tom Holland, who had a great mm-hmm. affection for the vampire genre. And what loved all the old vampire movies, but at the time that we made *Fright Night*, the, the vampire movies were in uh, had 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 faded from the scene, and when they were made, were made as as spoofs, were camped up. Mm. Love at first bite, yeah. um, and Tom felt strongly about the genre, loved the genre, but felt that obviously it had to be updated in some way. So that, but but felt strongly that you don't make fun of it, you have fun with it, 
And that's what both, I think, Fright Night and The Princess Bride do, Mm -hmm. which is they create an atmosphere, they create a genre, and then they go, oh, let's just twist it a little. Let's make it a little more fun. Let's make it funny. Let's make it serious. Let's make it romantic. Let's make it sad. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary. I think I think I remember when I first watched Princess Bride, and there's that moment like, "What am I watching?" Mm-hmm. Just got to get my head around this. And there's like, and then you start listening to the dialogue, and it does sound like poetry. Yeah, it's not necessarily written in rhyming couplets or anything, but just the as you mentioned, there's a it's very the rhythm profound rhythm. Yeah, very profound yeah, yeah. rhythm to it. And uh, getting back to the Nightmare Before Christmas, mm. I think that. The, the wonderful thing about that movie is that, and in a way, it, it, it parallels, oddly, The Princess Bride in that it takes some of the tropes of, um, of, uh, of a character going through something and coming out at the other end, and everything is rosy and wonderful, but the journey was difficult. And I think that that's one of the reasons why the movies had such an enduring uh, life is because I get a lot of young people or people in their 20s and 30s who come up to me at uh, uh, occasional conventions mm-hmm. and will say, you don't know how much this movie has meant to me because when I was a kid, I was very different. And I, I, I had no way of identifying with a culture mm-hmm. and that movie let me into a way of looking at the world that was a little different, but that in which everything worked out. Okay. And at the time I was struggling and I didn't see uh, uh, possibilities in my life uh, that coupled with the, I'm trying to think of a word to describe the artistry of the animation Mm-hmm. And I can't. I'm I'm speechless because the 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 stop motion animation in that movie, and that's Henry Selleck mm-hmm. and his team, um, is to me uh, otherworldly. You know, when you watch that movie, it, it, you 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 completely get involved in the reality. On the one hand, and you don't realize the painstaking work it took. They they shot. 11 seconds of usable sequence per week on four different sets or more. I don't know how many sets they were operating at one time. I saw maybe three or four when I was there. Uh, The work is so painstaking and at the same time, so detailed. And so it's uh, to me, it's a miracle. And I think that audience senses that Mm -hmm. when they watch it that even though they're caught up in the flow, I think they realize in some way, this is, this is an extraordinary uh, artistic accomplishment, the visuals, as well as the story. Right. Right. And I know you've maintained your relationship um, with the uh, franchise. What's your favorite piece of, um, Sorry, the word has just gone completely out of my merchandise. Ah. <laughs> What's your favorite piece of Jack Skellington merchandise? Oh gosh. 
I mean, I have a few of them here in my office. You know, there's a, I don't know if you can see it. Yeah, right sure. There, you see that casket in the background and you open it up and there's a life-size Jack in a Santa outfit. I mean, you know, it's endless. There are ashtrays. There are doorknobs uh, wrought of, of, you know, the finest brass with Jack's head on them. There are the, the, the merchandising uh, geniuses, and I'll say that uh, at Disney are mm-hmm. you know they're amazing. They're amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I um, <clears throat> come to the end of our time together. Um, oh no, no, coming to the end, me. and I just like to end with a few questions, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um, which I call the luggage in the crypt. The idea being that <laughs> <laughs> no, like the Egyptians, you know they had these wonderful places to go, right. which wasn't the end. There was no idea that you got into the pyramid and that's where you were going to spend the rest of eternity. It's eternity. a staging post, yeah, but right. you need, you need things on your journey. Yeah. Right. So you if gotta, I you have your had, gear, say again, you have to have your gear. You have to have your gear. Yeah. What film would you take with you? Well, first of all, the thought that somebody would build a pyramid <laughs> in my honor is a little far-fetched, but you know, we're, we're in genre land. So yeah. uh, I, you have to imagine Yeah. Um, what would I bring with me? Yeah. I would bring pictures of my children and my grandchildren. Uh, I have nine grandchildren Wow. Uh, and they're all extraordinary, extraordinary beings. They really are. Um, uh, the, uh, and I would uh, ask to be sure that the, the love of my wife would be with me uh, because that would carry me a long way. And beyond that, I can't imagine anything else I'd need. No book, no album. No well, computer. okay, okay. All right. If I'm really uh, mean. I would, take, I would take along with me copies of uh, um, Blu-rays, <clears throat> of um hobson's choice i don't know if you know that movie i do know that movie with it's charles lawton charles lawton and John the moon in the puddle, arguing with the moon in the puddle yeah and, and a, yeah and an extraordinary performance by a, a fabulous british actor named uh, um john mills no the, the actress um, oh sorry the actress barbara Debanzi, i think is her name right at any rate, uh, there are three extraordinary performances in that movie, yeah. and it's a Carol Reed movie. We just watched a Carol Reed movie last night, actually. Um, any movie by Michael Powell, uh, the great, great Michael Powell, Red Shoes, uh, Peeping Tom, You Can't Take It With You. Uh, not You Can't Take It With You, but I know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, Nosferatu, just as a kind of reminder of where I came from right. in my movie life. <laughs> Um, uh, how green was my valley? And I think I'd take along just because I I hear this from uh, so many people that when they're down, and I'm sure in the afterlife that you've got to have a down day, uh, a copy of the Princess Bride, uh, and a wonderful wonderful book called uh, Winter's Tale by a, a a writer named Mark Halpern Halpern Halpern. Yes. Uh, it's a great book. Um, and uh, his dark materials, the Philip Pullman books, um, those are among my favorite all time literary 
uh, Touchstones. You know those books? They're on I now. I, they, they, the BBC are just doing the TV, the, the film, yeah. effectively yeah. the film. They're on version. here, yeah, the, the version. Um, oh, there's so much. I, I can't, you know, any, any John Ford movie, uh, Shane, The Searchers, um, any... Uh, I'm really into Michael Powell these days because I'm reading his autobiographies. They're two huge volumes. Uh, right. And uh, he talks a lot about Hitchcock and his association with people like him and uh, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, I, I take that with me. Uh, I, this could take days. Move on. <laughs> Move, on. <laughs> Move on. Absolutely. <laughs> You're done, but, done. Uh, do you listen to music much? Yeah, yeah, I'm a big Baroque guy. I love Bach, um, Vivaldi, um, another period, but uh, uh, Mozart. Um, I'm also a big fan of the Beatles, uh, who isn't. Um, I listen to, uh, I'm, I have very eclectic musical tastes. Right. So, uh, you know, my musical tastes go across uh, so many different genres. I, I'm a big bluegrass guy because I grew up in West Virginia. And at the time, uh, I felt, you know, that it was hillbilly music and I, I didn't want to be a, a country kid, you know, thought of that way. And as I grew older, I realized the artistry and also the history that comes with it because so much of that music came from Scotland and Ireland. And I had a course when uh, this is another story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, from bluegrass to baroque, let's put it that. That's that's and a good and range. Roll. And rock and roll. I was in a rock and roll band when I was in high school. Ah, yeah, singing. Oh, you mentioned you're singing. I was a drummer. Guitar. I was a drummer, and I also sang back up in the band. And I, I've done some Broadway musicals. So, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, and favorite food. Oh, oh. Well, uh, some of it comes from my background. I make a, a number of Greek recipes, and there's one that I love called Euralaika, which my mother used to make all the time. And I made for my kids when they were little, and now they make for their kids. So recipes that have been passed down through the generations, they have a resonance uh, that's above and beyond the taste of them. It's also about, you know, where they came from. So, you know, I, my kids still have recipes that I've given them uh, from my mother and her recipes came from her ancient, uh, her antecedents in the Greek islands. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. That's a great choice. And what about a piece of visual art, a painting, a statue? These days, um, among them, Guernica, I think uh, had a real impact on me when I was younger. And even now when I look at it, it has, it evokes so much about the uh, uh, human, the human capability for atrocity, but also the human capability for um, finding a way to express that kind of anguish in a way that has a lasting effect. Um Uh, any painting by Vermeer, uh, certain Rodin sculptures. Um, gosh, uh, this fills my head 
with <laughs> with all sorts of thoughts. Yeah, right. and 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 great great films. Right. I've gone over a number of them. Yeah, and they're still in my sarcophagus. Right. 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 Okay. Fair enough. The one question I did, you mentioned a couple of times that you're working on a biography at the moment. Have you got as far as finding a title for the book yet? Yeah, uh, it, it's called Heroes, Vampires, and Villains. That's a great title. Yeah, yeah. And we're, my agent is, we're, we're sort of fighting through the, the, the traffic of what's going on with the pandemic uh, as is necessary right now. So there's not a lot going on in the literary world, but hopefully some, at some point in the near future, I'll have a publisher and we'll, we'll announce publication. Still working on it. Right, right, right. Well, I'm sure it's going to be absolutely amazing and fascinating. And you know, just from talking to you now, I know there are so many more stories. Chris, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. My thanks again to Chris Sarandon. What a fascinating and charming man he is. Join me next week for the last show of season one of The Chattering Hour, when Chris Rowe, our producer, joins me to discuss the origins of the show and our favourite moments from season one. Until then, have a very safe and happy Christmas and hopefully see you on December 31st. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin McLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions. Thank you.